Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy yeah, to introduce you all to our, our uh, speaker series for the year under, under new and less better and, and worse in directorship. So, uh, but the speakers are great. So, so that uh, continues addition. And, and it's great to have uh, Joe Anderson as our inaugural uh, uh, speaker for this series. And uh, we, he, he's a, a professor at the University of, of Utrecht. Oh, you pronounce beautiful. Okay, thank you. Thank you. And he's uh, 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 done a lot of work on of autonomy, agency, and connection to the extended mind. Uh, uh, um, we actually have a like a, on a volume on procrastination, which I, I remember when I was working for this volume on procrastination, and people would ask me what you're working on. You said procrastination, <laughs> and, and everybody was so scared of the jokes that all the papers are there on time. Like I was like, I never spent something like that. Yeah. So, so but, um, it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, uh, Joe to, to us all here, and uh, uh, I'll let him speak now. Great. Thanks very much, uh, you know, uh, It's great to be back here. Uh, I gave a talk years ago here in the, in the Ethics Center, uh, and I'm uh, looking forward to hearing your comments uh, on this. Just uh, a bit about uh, me. I'm at uh, the Ethics Institute, which is actually part of, it's, it's part of the, the philosophy department. Uh, at Utrecht University, so it's like a section within the, the philosophy department, and it's a really lively uh, and fun place. It's, uh, it's a great privilege uh, to work there with this fantastic bunch of people and a lot of uh, themes, so it's nice also to be comparing notes with another ethics center here. Um, so, so the issues I, I work on are quite wide-ranging, and I approach them from this sort of eclectic mix of of approaches, and so some of that may be somewhat confusing in the in the background of the talk. But um, I try to bring together a number of different perspectives to address um, issues at this in in this case at the at the intersection of discussions of technology and discussions of recognitional justice, attributional justice, as I'm calling it uh, here. Um, and so this talk is. It's new material, it's building on some, some other things, but this idea of attributional justice is, or attributional injustice, is something that I'm hoping to explore during the sabbatical that just started five days ago. So I'm it's still early days, right, in terms of results. Um, but it's part of a larger, larger work that I'm doing on the gaps between the autonomy skills that are presupposed um, on the part of people and, uh, and what they actually have. But it's also related to this large research project that I'm participating in on the ethics of socially disruptive uh, technologies. And um, so the aim of the talk today is to sort of identify an area of research, an area of political concern of ethics uh, within a wider uh, landscape, and to understand particularly the ways in which uh, assistive technologies related to self-control may um, may raise particular issues. I put a little plug in. I'm not actually an author of this, but our consortium just recently published a, uh, a volume on socially disruptive technologies, which is freely downloadable if you follow the, the, the link to the Estes site. So where this talk is supposed to take us is towards some insights into ethics of assistive technologies, the 
issues of justice and ethics that are raised by them. But it's going to be a very circuitous route. I just thought I'd say at the, uh, at the outset where I'm headed so that the detour, um, so you have more patience for the, for the detour. And it's really, I mean, most of the, the talk is about articulating a frame within which to further discuss some of these issues. So I'll be interested to hear from you uh, thoughts about that. I mean, we talk about ethics of technology, most often the concerns are focused on issues of security, control, privacy, uh, and so on. And those are important concerns, um, but I'm actually more interested in the implications of technologies for social relations, and this raises sort of different sets of issues about ethics, uh, politics, and justice. And in the context, I'm particularly interested in assistive technologies. This comes in part from work I've been doing for years in the area of um, disability studies and the ways in which people within disability movements in disability studies have been thematizing a number of problematic issues with regards to um, assistive technologies various forms of technological supports, but also social supports and so on. I mean, assistive technology is actually a very broad sense, which can include a wide range of supports. I'll get back to that later. So assistive technologies have, on the one hand, enormous potential, right? And when you, when you think of the, what's called the social model of disability, uh, which argues that although people may have various impairments or atypical um, forms of embodiment, those only become disabling within a particular social context. And so when you start thinking about people's abilities, the focus shifts to, to actually the justice as a matter of getting access to, um, to these affordances, these supports, these assistive technologies as just a matter of perfectly normal, uh, normal support. Um, the slogan being, in a certain sense, we're all disabled in various ways. And so the focus of justice is on expanding access to those issues. At the same time, this emphasis on the accessibility of technologies that allow us to function um, sort of on a par with others in ways that we might not otherwise be able to do has been um, criticized from a number of, of perspectives, some of it Foucault-inspired, but not all of it. The, one of the recent inver, uh, versions of this is what's known as crip technoscience, where as with queer, the term crip or crippled person is kind of used as a, as a, as a nom de guerre or sort of an oppositional, an oppositional label to kind of re, reassess and reframe the discussion of um, who needs what assistance, right? So the whole idea of assistive technologies from this point of view is also is problematic because it's operating on the basis of assumptions about what, what's normal, what's to be expected, what the standards are that everyone needs to meet. And this raises the larger issue, which, which will be in the background of, of this entire talk, which is what expectations with regard to the development of abilities are fair? What 
what do we ethically, politically, democratically, ultimately, what do we want to be able to expect of one another? And I think that's a, that's a way of framing a number of discussions about public policy, ethics, uh, ethics of technology, and so on, that is often not sufficiently in the, in, in the foreground. How, what abilities do we want to be able to expect? And the, the point from, from this denormalizing or denaturalizing perspective is to say these aren't things that can be taken for granted. In the spirit of Frankfurt School critical social theory that I come from, I see one of the old posters from the critical theory roundtable uh, from, from back in the day. I think I was actually at that one here. Um, the idea that the social expectations, norms, and institutions that we have now not be taken as a given. Um, they, they, they have a particular uh, path by which they, they emerged and can be subject to criticism. So just briefly, the path I want to take now, so we just talked about the ethics of technology, where I want to end up, and the path I want to take to get us there moves through a number of, uh, a number of claims. And I start with, related to this idea of how much we want to expect, the idea that, in particular with regards to self-control, which would be the competence I focus on, but it's true for other forms of competence as well, being considered by others to be competent, or in this case, self-control, is an essential precondition, a kind of entry ticket into full participation in society. Right? So these expectations and how much we want to expect from one another are very crucial because they are what set the entry requirements in many cases to these, to these contexts of cooperation. And one key form of injustice then following from this involves arbitrary or unwanted, unwarranted denial of competence including in the domain of self-control, volitional, volitional confidence. Um, and this unwarranted misappraisal is not just a matter of epistemic injustice. It's not just a case of bias or unfairness or structural blindness with regard to whether someone has the standards, whether they do in fact meet them, but it involves these broader issues, what, I'm, what I want to label attributional uh, injustice, about what, what standards are appropriate, how demanding we're going to be about those, what the thresholds for, for tolerance are, uh, and so on. And then finally, the, uh, the idea is that the ethical concerns raised by assistive technologies, some, which, I'll, which I'll sketch briefly at the end, um, in the domain of uh, supports for self-control, um, need to be understood in terms of the potential for attributional injustice. So the idea is to put on the agenda this idea of attributional injustice, situate it within the, the politics and ethics of how much it's appropriate to expect of one another, and then to see what implications that has for, for these uh, technologies. Can I ask you something? Yeah. Sorry, what do you mean by self-control? Ah, we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I want to start broadly with, with self-justice uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a matter of, of inclusion, right? So self, social justice can mean many things, but what I want to focus on here is uh, the social justice that comes up in the domain of 
determining whether someone is appropriately included as a participant in cooperation, right? And this is important because there are cooperation is vital I mean, evolutionarily for, for survival, for a sense of belonging, uh, but also for, for opportunities. So, so start just by calling your attention to how central cooperation and the benefits of cooperation are for a just society and a good human life. And then focusing on the wrongness of, uh, the, that injustice involves as a matter of arbitrary exclusion. I'll be coming to that in a moment. The idea is that it's not just any exclusion that's problematic. There are ways in which it's perfectly legitimate and appropriate and just to exclude someone on the basis also of incompetence. The question is whether or not it's, uh, it's, it's justified. And sort of more broadly in focusing on cooperation and inclusion, I'm taking inspiration from people like Nancy Frazier, who talks about the principle of participatory parity, or Ryan Forrest, who will be speaking in a couple of weeks here um, on avoiding noumenal alienation, uh, a phrase that I'm very much hoping he'll be explaining further in a couple of weeks. Um, but also uh, the Convention of the Rights of Persons with a Disability, uh, which was passed, ratified, well, it was, it was passed by the UN in 2006, and almost all countries, with the glaring exception of the United States, have ratified it now, focuses on eliminating the barriers to full and effective participation and inclusion in society as sort of a central principle uh, of justice. Um, and I think it's important to highlight here, it's, when I'm focusing on this issue of social justice, it's not just a matter of the loss in welfare. Clearly, if you don't have access to these contexts of cooperation, you don't get those benefits, you fall behind other people. There are a variety of issues related uh, to that. What I want to suggest is that there is a distinct and rather direct concern of justice that has to do with having, as it were, a legitimate claim to be able to cooperate with others. It's a claim that can also legitimately be rejected or denied, but an explanation were owed a justification in, in those cases. So, I mean, this is still, as I said, it's still early days with, with, with developing this further. For me, it's an open question whether or not ultimately, theoretically, this can all be brought under a larger rubric of justice understood in terms of equality, but uh, sort of exploring at least the possibility that this notion of um, social justice as, as inclusion is, is a more sort of directly, is a more direct concern with, with justice. So as I said, exclusion can be justified, right? Um, it's not automatically wrong, but must be uh, justified. Another, another reference to the rights to justification from Reiner Forst. Um, and you can compare this actually to the discussion that's been going on for a while now in the, the neo-Republican uh, view of, of Pettit, my colleague uh, Dorothea Gideka and others. So just as Republican accounts of freedom as non-domination allow for the possibility that it is sometimes just to restrict freedom, um, it's also the case that exclusion can be can be justified, but again, the key is it needs to be done on a non-arbitrary, on a non-arbitrary basis. Um, and so, let's say one of the potential justifications for exclusion can be that people lack the requisite competence 
to participate in the cooperative practices or the institutions in the ways that are required for it functioning the way in which those participants are committed to it or function. So you can think of cases like uh, chess tournaments, right? In chess tournaments, you're excluded if you don't have a certain, from competitions at a certain level, if you don't have the requisite, the requisite competence. These are fairly formal sort of stipulative uh, contexts. I mean, other contexts may be literacy requirements for a job. There may be certain you know, functions, if you think of it more in an institutional context, where the capacity to read and write might actually be very central to functioning in that job. But there are many contexts, very mundane contexts, in which our interactions with one another occur against the background of all kinds of subtle judgments being made of the degree to which someone has the competence that makes the interaction um, work, um, feasible. So for example, with second language uh, discussions, right? So I move between three different languages on a regular basis and always I'm in conversations with people where I need to have the sense, and they, you know, for other languages, they need to have the sense with me, um, you know, I try to speak French. At some point, someone say, look, there's no point. You don't have the competent French for us to continue this conversation, right? That can be an affront, and that might be inappropriate if what's needed for that conversation to work is fairly basic, but someone is being, like, overly exacting and saying, no, no, I just can't tolerate you abusing the language in this way. But there are other contexts where if you're having really a heart-to-heart -heart talk with someone or there's something of legal significance, it's very important that the interaction be structured on the basis of warranted assumptions about the, the necessary level so this is sort of the kinds of uh, cases to think about as we go forward. There are a variety of ways in which the, the sufficient competence, right? It's not perfect competence that's expected, but sufficient competence is, um, is determined. We have in these, in, these, in these situations, formal and informal, uh, more or less shared understandings of what, uh, what the standards are. These are contested, but very often, you know, okay, we're gonna have this kind of a conversation, or this is the level of chess play we're going to be engaged in, and those mutual understandings frame what the, what the standards are. Related to this are questions about what counts as providing evidence that you have the competence, right? So if somebody is, um, is speaking a language with me that they have mastered less than I have, and they make a small grammatical error. Is, is that a trigger for me for assuming like this, this person probably hasn't understood half of what I've been saying? So we look for these bits of evidence in making these, these attributions uh, of competence. And in these domains, we also have the background assumptions open to contestation about how precise these standards are to be. I refer to these as tolerances, right? So 
there are forms of computer code that have very narrow tolerances. You have any of you have an extra space in the wrong place, the computer, the program doesn't run. Whereas other languages are much more flexible and much more accommodating. Similarly, for um, sort of modes of of wood construction, of furniture or something. There are ways of doing it that are gonna allow for a little bit more error. There are other cases in which if you don't get the measurements exactly right, it's going to fail. So these are some of the background assumptions that frame what counts as sufficient competence in, in, in any given domain. Um, and they're often fuzzy and they are, and they are contested. Um, so the broader point, I mean, some of this, a lot of this is really just kind of sketching a frame for, for thinking about these things that I hope you find useful. But what I want to highlight here is the ways in which we have social practices, more, more or less explicit understandings of what all of these conditions for sufficient competence uh, are. And those practices, institutions, and norms are, are themselves subject to contestation. And that's really where the room for a kind of politicization or democratization uh, and, uh, and furthering of justice comes in. You can think of one way of articulating some of these background assumptions in terms of um, implicit design principles for our, for our practices. So we have sort of standing um, standing attitudes towards how, how exacting or accommodating in different, in different contexts we think the standards should be. So in kind of informal interactions, people can often get very irritated if someone has an overly exacting standard, it doesn't allow for, for certain tolerances. And I think more broadly, we could say, this is kind of something about a liberal or solidist, solidaristic culture that brings with it a commitment. Now, this is a commitment that's also open to, to ongoing debate. This kind of point about political culture, a, a commitment to cutting people slack, of not being very exacting, but being more accommodating. Shanna Schifrin has this wonderful paper, I strongly recommend it in PPA from now, 22 years ago, uh, on accommodation and paternalism, where she points out basically almost anything can count as a third-party harm and therefore license interventions without, be, without them being called paternalistic. And uh, so what we need to focus on is more room for accommodations of some of the small, small errors that people make, not count those as threats to the overall uh, welfare. I've got a paper uh, on what I call regimes of autonomy, which also tries to distinguish at a high level differences you might have and debates about those differences we might have between different cultures. So I think at a meta level, there's a very interesting normative question to ask about in general, how exacting or how flexible do we want our standards uh, to be and the way in which we go about enforcing them, right? So by extension, this will have implications also for what I want to call attributional injustice. If you have very um, kind of relaxed and accommodating and relatively low standards for the competence presupposed for participation, 
you're going to be, there's going to be much less risk of attributional injustice, of, of wrongly attributing to people a, a, an incompetence. But the more exacting things become, and there may be good reasons for that, but they need to be justified, the more the risk of attributional injustice arises. So I'm sort of introducing this, this term. You may convince me I need to drop it. It's still fairly fresh in my own usage. The idea is, as a form of social injustice, attributional injustice relates to attributing preconditions for participating for participation in social practice institutions or other contexts of cooperation. So it's the form of injustice that operates in that domain. And as I've already alluded to, this is different from the injustice involved in not giving someone the opportunity to develop those competences. Also very important. Also something that we can think about in terms of social injustice. But what I want to focus on is really these, these practices and the background norms governing them with regards to how we attribute this. Now, some of you have already probably been thinking of the parallels with work in epistemic injustice, which I think fits neatly into this broader category of attributional injustice. So work uh, inspired by Miranda Fricker's brilliant book um, of that title from 2007, uh, distinguishes testimonial and hermeneutic injustices, highlighting the structural factors that impede the correct appraisal of someone's knowledge claims and by implication their confidence. So, you know, examples of uh, driving while black, someone is pulled over and there's, there's, there's some irregularity with their paperwork for the registration of the vehicle and the person has a story. In the case of someone who's white, that's believed more easily than the person's black. So these are cases of, of epistemic injustice where what someone is trying to um, communicate, or, or more broadly, the kinds of perspectives someone has in, in debates are viewed as either less well-informed or less, less relevant. Um, what I want to suggest is that attributional injustice is, in a certain sense, broader. It also includes the forms of arbitrariness in the attribution of, of competence the standards and aims regarding sufficient competence. So the idea is that attribution, concerns with attributional injustice have to do with the arbitrariness of the standards that are used in the attribution or, or withholding of, um, of certain status. I'll give you an example of a parallel context uh, from uh, work in critical literacy studies. Uh, Tannis Atkinson, Atkinson and others have looked at the ways in which in job placement programs, other welfare programs, there's been a focus on a certain form of literacy being, being central. And one of the, and, and this ends up being often quite marginalizing for, for a, number of, a number of people or, or normalizing as we saw with the, with the earlier discussion. And one aspect of this has to do with the epistemic injustice involved. People, um, people are giving evidence of being literate, but they have various workarounds that they're using, or it's non-standard, non-typical uses of, uh, uh, of 
uh, of language and, the, and that evidence is improperly understood. Or there's bias that goes into even hearing what someone's saying as grammatically correct. And those are sort of familiar, familiar terms uh, in the domain of epistemic injustice. But I think there's also um, questions at, at a broader or deeper level, I'm not sure what the right metaphor is there, for the contested nature of the relevant threshold for literacy. How, lit how much of a grasp of the grammar do you have to have to count as being literate enough to participate in a particular, in a particular program? And who decides how that, gets, how that threshold gets set? Um, what are the underlying assumptions about why literacy is important, or more, more precisely, what were the contexts within, within which literacy is relevant? There are lots of, uh, there are lots of jobs in which high levels of literacy are not relevant, but when this is used as a sort of blanket um, criterion, for, for, for limiting access, it can be unduly uh, restrictive. And also in line with some of the points we've been making uh, earlier, you know, there are questions about how exacting, how accommodating or exacting should the standards be for assessments. So going back to this, uh, the, this idea of attributional injustice, uh, we can say that in cases of attributional injustice, um, there are structural aspects to the criteria of assessment, um, the thresholds of sufficiently competent, and what counts as evidence um, being arbitrary. So when these standards and these criteria and these thresholds are arbitrary or insufficiently justified, we have a case of attributional uh, injustice. So these are, these include, for example, barriers to the participation in the co-creation of the standards. So this is a basic point about collective self-governance, a democratic imperative. Um, who's deciding what those standards are and do, it's coming back also to the crypt technoscience point, people from a disabilities movement will be saying, like, we want a say, we want a voice in determining what's going to count as able to function well enough in these, in these contexts. Because very often they're much more creative about ways of reconfiguring what it is to function, right? So if you think of being disabled as you're not able to um, locomote via your two legs, then you have, then anyone in a wheelchair, anyone who uses a wheelchair is, is, is disabled and has a problem functioning. If you think of it able to get around, classic point from the social, social model of disability, people in the right environments are at least as able to move from place to place using a wheelchair. It's just how you frame and think about these, these standards. Um, and there are also uh, points about, as it were, the, the, Democrat, the access to democratic procedures by which there are opportunities for approving and revising these criteria. So really this shifts, this shifts the question to what are the procedures of justification for these, uh, for these standards? I want to I mention, before going to the next uh, point, one, one further point about, uh, about alienation, about uh, attributional injustice. 
And that is, I think it also contributes to another form or involves another form of wrong, which is a kind of pressure to meet normal, typical standards. So the attributional injustice can also involve um, a, a pressure, my third plug for Ina Forst here, um, uh, of pressure to pass. Or there's this wonderful book by Yoshina, Yoshina, a, um, a, a legal theorist, who talks about covering your behavior. This is um, also discussed in cases of a very interesting discussion of someone who does uh, stimming, like, like using a, a fidget, uh, what is it called, fidget spinner. spinner. Um, and, and programs designed to suppress the use of these spinners to cover neuroatypicality, neurodiversities. Uh, and so I think this, Another aspect of attributional injustice has to do with, in order to not come across, not to trigger thoughts on other people's part that you're incompetent, you have to be very, very vigilant about them not seeing things that might, that might lead them uh, to, to believe that. Okay, so this is broadly about this framework of attributional, um, uh, attributional injustice, and now the case of self-control um, and um, as the psychologists refer to it, uh, self-regulation. So one non-arbitrary basis for exclusion is uh, volitional incompetence or lack of self-control. You ask what the definition of self-control is. I'm basically operating on a largely psych large for the psychology literature on self-regulation, which has to do with capacities for, for impulse uh, control. Actually, we get to that uh, in a moment, but I wanted to point out that when I'm talking about these reputational benefits, there's being seen as someone who has self-control. These are different from the direct benefits, which are enormous, of having self-control, having the ability to um, uh, resist temptations, uh, having the ability to uh, avoid situations that will exceed our abilities to self-regulate, um, to control uh, impulses, uh, and these assumptions I think are very much in the back. This is going to be unsatisfactory, I'm sure, as a, as a precise definition of, of self-control, but these are some of the things that um, are typically discussed as, as involved. And so grounds for refusing to cooperate with people that is legitimate forms of denial of participation in cooperative context may relate to, for example, anything formal institutions where we have sort of, you might want to have clear measures of self-control for prison guards, foster parents. Um, it gets very tricky in terms of policing this, but I can imagine if there are clear indications of it, that might be uh, a legitimate grounds for, for denial. There are associative uh, contexts, I mean, sports, I mentioned uh, chess competitions, social movements. Do we trust people involved in the same movement that they're going to be able to um, uh, have the fortitude needed when the, when the water cannons start, start blasting? And then informal context, getting into a car with someone who's been drinking or I recently went to a sauna 
And these are just astonishing institutions, right? Where complete strangers get into enclosed spaces, sitting next to each other, completely naked, right? And the kind of assumptions that you make about other people's self-regulatory abilities in this, in this context are, they're interestingly staged as well. There are norms governing in this. So there's a sort of a variety of contexts in which the, the, the practice only makes sense against the background of being able to attribute a certain level of um, self-control and people not having that could be a, uh, a legitimate grounds for, uh, for exclusion. So when can we say that exclusion on the grounds of insufficient uh, self-regulatory competence or self-control is non-arbitrary, right? When would it be legitimate uh, to do this? Well, I think first of all, it needs to be important that we that we can minimize or set aside these concerns with uh, epistemic injustice, the kind Victor and others have, have talked about. Um, the standards need to be reasonable, proportionate, um, and that should be proportionate and and fit for purpose. That there aren't additional requirements for competence being generated that aren't necessary for the functioning of the practice as it's, as it's understood to be. But that, of course, itself is something that's open to discussion. The people might say, let's change this practice so we don't have to expect so much in terms of self-control. Or actually, I'd much prefer a very different practice, but to get there, we're going to have to be more demanding about what kinds of self-control people can demonstrate. But also, we're going to have to um, pay attention to these standards of uh, sufficiency being exacting or accommodating in the appropriate uh, way. And here again, I have um, this point about the, 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 the uh, yeah. So, so we have we have practices for determining this. And what this sort of broadly leads to is is a is an issue of democratic accountability for these expectations and and, and standards. That's still at a fairly high level of abstraction, but I say I'm concerned here primarily with uh, with agenda setting. And I think one, as I mentioned before, you know, one of these defining values could be to endorse or embrace as a kind of meta principle uh, a commitment to accommodation uh, as uh, as we did before. This is going to come back again um, in a couple of minutes with the discussion of technologies as I get to the end of the talk. Um, there are, there are lots of factors that, that, that complicate this. I'm sure you can think of many that I've not thought of myself. One of them, I think, has to do with the way in which there are cultural factors that frame the background assumptions and prejudices about these. Conceptions of what the human being is usually like. I think it's very interesting to look at different, different religious traditions, different countries about what, what view they have about the kind of innate abilities for self-control of the human being, these sort of anthropological uh, uh, assumptions. Um, and I think, for, you know, for example, there are widespread, you know, it's an empirical question at some level to what extent these assumptions are, are well-grounded, but they're also ripe for prejudices, biases becoming uh, entrenched, um, assumptions being made that, um, so the, there's a very interesting literature emerging now on, on to what extent uh, obesity or 
um, being heavier in weight should be de-stigmatized um, or not. Um, but a big part of it is the concern about the associations that there are, the prejudicial associations between being overweight and lacking in a global level self-control. Uh, self I think many cases we can identify ways in which there's an ideological problem involved and criticize them on the basis of that. But I mean, basically the larger point is just, I think this needs to be part of the mix when we're thinking about, um, when we're thinking about policy and we're thinking about also ethics of technology. So uh, returning now to technology, uh, the examples, I'll be relatively brief about this. Um, Joe Heath and I have a paper going way back in that same volume on procrastination in which we talk about the extended will and various, various strategies that can be involved to sort of scaffold your willpower to, to, to boost it up. Uh, and I think, you know, there's a lot of different, uh, different, strat different structures that could provide those support in, uh, in a recent inaugural address when I took this chair in Utrecht, um, I identified uh, five different sorts of structures that can provide, provide supports and so on. But the examples I have in mind are things like an app you might have to keep your attention, to lock down the temptation of using a, um, uh, of playing a game or whatever you are, you know, getting, hopping on Twitter or whatever your thing is. Um, auto locks for cars that have a breathalyzer attached to the ignition so that you have to, um, you have to get a, a, a negative test of uh, intoxication before the car will start. Um, AI-driven sort of smart guidance for a healthy diet. If you set in certain parameters, um, a, an online grocery uh, delivery service might kind of steer, nudge you in a certain direction or even forbid certain, certain purchases. There's, you know, I think get even more speculative. I think at some point, you know, we'll have ways for upregulating or downregulating a number of uh, endocrine functions or, or even neuro, neuro functions. I think related to this, so these are the kind of the, the ways in which we might have ways of boosting, boosting self-control by, by manipulating various aspects of our environment or our bodies. Um, but I think there's also changes in the ways which technologies allow us to assess levels of competence. So these are also relevant for the attributional injustice uh, questions. We have much more information, larger and larger data gathered in more and more context about people's behavior, the evidence of their self-control. But I think also when you add to that machine learning or other techniques of processing these data, you can pick up more correlations, right? It may be that someone with a nervous tick has a certain probability of also lacking self, I just made this up, lacking self-control in, in, in other contexts. And again, you can get science fiction and, and speculative about this. Okay, we're almost there. Um, so the implications that this has for attributional injustice are that I think we need to um, appreciate the ways in which these technologies in the domain of self-control um, may have implications for just in this larger context I've been uh, discussing. I think one of the things we can expect is as technologies become available and increasingly accessible to people to improve their self-control, there will be pressure to, to expect higher and higher levels of enhancement. I mean, this is the familiar enhancement 
enhancement debates, post-humanism, and so on. But I think there's also a tendency to normalize high levels of functioning uh, as a result. I think there may also be a sense in which the standards may be taken more as given as the technologies are geared toward normalizing uh, people. They're designed to restore what is the, 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 the benchmark level of, of functioning. And that's problematic because there may be uh, important questions to be asked about those, uh, those standards being adjusted. Um, this willingness to comment. Um, yeah, so willingness to be to accommodate being put under pressure by the development of these attributive, these um, uh, assistive uh, technologies. That as we have more and more available technologies to address a shortfall, the the willingness to accommodate something that somebody could rectify uh, may be may be undermined. And also with regard to the monitoring, uh, we get uh, increased pressure towards more exacting criteria. The more we can measure with confidence whether people have certain levels of self-control in particular contexts, um, that puts more pressure, that, that sort of argues in favor of, that uh, put it differently, that takes away one of the key arguments for being accommodating. Namely, that we're never really sure about, uh, about our judgments. To the extent to which we are sure and we have better ways of monitoring people's uh, levels of self-control capacity, that's going to take that argument uh, away. And I think another sort of interesting uh, fact, and then, I'm, and then I'm wrapping up, is to the extent to which it's widely believed that using assistive technologies can be important for reliably improving your self-control, that introduces another way in which we can monitor whether or not somebody is, is trustworthy, whether they have the level of self-control, because you can see whether or not they're using uh, these, whether or not they have these, uh, these assistive technologies at their, um, at their beck and call. Um, it's actually an open question. I've got another paper looking at ways in which that, that response itself is probably also subject to a disparate impact where groups, groups or identities that are associated with lower levels of self-control may tend to interpret the use of these technologies as confirmation of their deficits. Whereas for other people who are using the same technologies, that may be interpreted instead as look at those clever power users who are uh, you know, even more savvy with their use of technology and therefore more likely to be trusted. So there are complications there as well, but I think the use of these technologies adds an additional dimension to these, to these questions of attributional uh, injustice. So see if we've gone where I wanted to do. I emphasize this idea of being self-controlled as in some contexts, an entry ticket uh, identified a form of uh, injustice that has to do with arbitrary or uh, insufficiently justified standards and, um, and criteria and the implementation of those uh, and distinguish this from epistemic injustice as a broader form of attributional injustice and then argue that 
when we're thinking about the design and, uh, and surrounding policies regarding technologies that provide these assistances for, for self-control, self it's really important to keep this, this lens of attributive in, uh, injustice, attributional injustice involved and not just focus on questions of, of safety and, and privacy and, and so on. And with that, um, I thank you for your attention. So uh, we're going to have a, a, a five-minute break, so to give people a chance to have more pizza, and then, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and, then, and then come back for questions. I only answer your questions when there's, when there's no pizza left. There's no self-control. Yes, so then you can lose your self-control. Yeah, yeah. Shall we, um, shall we turn off the, the, the projector? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, people may ask me to, to rewind. Yeah. But I mean, it's fine. It's, it's, that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, maybe we can keep it. Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And then I'll, I'll, I'll try just, to monitor it. Okay, okay. I'll just leave. Uh, yeah. This one. Oh, oh, actually, it's really good. Okay. No, it's okay. Yeah. Oh, um, J dot H. <laughs> I actually, I have it right here. This is, this is one of the things that's been interesting about online conferences that you can just do screenshots very quickly. That's right. And, <laughs> and I had a, like, I've got, I've got this application that also can do, can convert. Like a, if you take a screenshot and it will just read the read the text. So oh, yeah. somebody, so that's very easy. I got sort of used to this during COVID. I'm like all these all these lectures and like all their powerpoints and so on. I'm taking little snippets. Of, that's like an interesting quote, and I've immediately got it in my notes that I'm taking behind my computer at a remote location. But now I feel like a doofus, like taking a photo <laughs> of, of each slide. <laughs> 